it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome back to the Situation in the Story podcast, where you can peer into what happens behind the page as I pick authors' brains about their experiences, their process, and their purpose. I'm your host, Chris Moore. If this is not your first time listening, please, please pause the show right now. Leave a rating, write a review on Apple Podcasts. Your feedback will help this show grow so that I can continue to bring you compelling stories and conversations more often. As always, thank you for tuning in. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. For my ninth episode, I sat down with Aaron Carr, the author of Strung Out, One Last Hit and Other Lies That Nearly Killed Me which will be released by Park Row Books this Tuesday, February 25th. Erin is known for her writing on addiction, recovery, mental health, relationships, parenting, infertility, and self-care. Her weekly advice column, Ask Erin, is published on Ravishly. Her personal essays have appeared in Self, Salon, HuffPost, Marie Claire, Esquire, Cosmopolitan, Good Housekeeping, Redbook, and others. She's the recipient of the Eric Hoffer Editor's Choice Prize and lives in New York City with her husband and two kids. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Yeah, I'm excited. And thank you for reading it so fast. <laughs> it was... Totally a joy. So the first question I ask everyone is, why do you write? I think that initially I wrote to sort of process my own feelings to figure out what I thought, what I felt. But that's sort of um, changed over time. And now I think, I mean, obviously I write because I get a satisfaction from like expressing myself. But I also, I think that the bigger picture is that it's like connecting with people. Right. And um that's the part of it that brings like this fulfillment that I didn't have with anything else before. Mm. Because I think what's so important, whether it's a book or a film or a piece of fine art, what's important is that there's some sort of reflection of the human experience, even in an abstract painting, because that's what resonates with us is that something in our body recognizes a part of our own experience as a human being. And that's why we're moved. So I think that, finding a way to do that and connect with people has been, I mean, like the biggest gift ever. And you have an advice column yes. as well, right? How long have you been doing that? I've been doing the advice column since 2009. 
Okay. I started it on like my old blog spot and then I moved it to Ravishly in 2015. Right. Blog spot. Those were the days. <laughs> <laughs> so your memoir, Strung Out, One More Hit and Other Lies It Nearly Killed Me, comes out tomorrow, right? Tuesday. Tuesday from Park yes. Row Books. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I read it in one day, as you know, which I <laughs> may have done even without the deadline. But how would you describe your book? The book is a memoir that covers, the, the bulk of the book covers a 15-year span of my struggle with heroin addiction. And the book is really about looking at the psychology behind addiction, going beyond just my own story, but addressing a lot of the factors that add to the stigma around addiction. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to start with a long quote from your prologue. Okay. <laughs> um, you wrote about addiction when you can't get out of the bed in the morning when you have no self-worth left, when you've had childhood trauma, when you suffer from any form of PTSD, the option of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and overcoming addiction or other mental health issues is not possible, and that's not a moral failing. I remember the term moral failing very well from traditional 12-step programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably a reason, a large reason I've avoided them mm-hmm. so much. Um uh, over my 15 years on and off the wagon with alcohol. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk about how you see addiction? If it's not a moral failing, which I strongly agree, do you see it as a disease, a trauma response, both, neither? I think that it's different for different people. I think that the disease model I have seen in certain people, and obviously I'm not a medical professional, but I've had a lot of experience around people who would be classified as struggling with substance use disorders. Right. And I think that there are people where I see the disease in action. You can, it's, it's really like they may not have had any childhood trauma. There's just something that flips for them. But I, I think that there are other people that may not have the disease of alcoholism or addiction, you know, as we understand it through like a 12 step model but are self-medicating, are treating emotional pain, trauma, untreated mental health diagnoses, those sorts of things. And I think that, you know, that's why it's important to understand that there's not just one solution to how we treat addiction. I think we need Mm -hmm. to be open to that. It's the same way we would be if we were treating cancer, Mm -hmm. right? The same treatment doesn't work for every single person, even if they have the same type of cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and how you would treat a disease like that is you would try one protocol and if it doesn't work, you would move on to another protocol. Well, I think that we need to do the same thing with addiction because it mm-hmm. is an illness, whether or not it's, you know, a cause and effect illness or it's something that somebody is born with and it's a physiological response. It's almost irrelevant. It's just that we need to treat it with whatever is going to work. And sometimes that may be you know, medically assisted treatment. Sometimes that may be a 12-step program. Sometimes there may be another program like smart recovery. I just don't think there's one path to it. And I think that we need to get outside of that rigidity that that sort of has traditionally been there. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I really related to your kind of, for you, it seemed like it was the, this thing you called the need to leave. Mm-hmm. Um I totally get that, but I always am thinking about, like, my behavior with alcohol kind of fits into the, you know, 12-step description. Like, mm-hmm. once you start, there's, you know, I'm going to drink until I pass out or whatever. 
I'm, I don't know. I'm just always thinking, and I know there's a ton of science about it. But if it's the need to leave for me, I could stop at like five drinks and still be gone. You know what I mean? Right. So what is it that pushes me to drink? The last time I relapsed, I fell off my bike and got a concussion. Mm. And, and I don't remember any of it. So right. it's like, what's the difference? Why are some people better equipped to like sit with pain than others is, you know, a big question of my life. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think certainly there's something physiological that's different in each and every one of us, right? I mean, I think that I was prone to depression anyway. I think that I was already prone to uh, depression, anxiety, and various other diagnoses I've had over the years. Yeah. And then you combine that sort of with your, whatever your upbringing was and any other sort of trauma. And trauma isn't just like necessarily an event. There's like generational trauma that's passed down. There is sort of, you know, the trauma of poverty, trauma of racism, trauma of identity, all different sorts of identities. So I think that those come into play as well. And that's why, you know, the way that we have things set up now with, um, you know, when people go to treatment, it's really the 28 days, like say somebody goes into like a rehab, the 28 days is really the easy part. You know, uh -huh. it's really the aftercare because it's not, you know, I stopped a million times. It was uh -huh. staying stopped. That right. was the problem. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't stay stopped, you know, yeah. um, until I could. <laughs> and now it's been 17 years. So I think that, and it, I didn't do that until I sort of opened myself up to like other possibilities and how to treat what the issues were, you know, especially like if we look at something, take a look at like the opioid crisis, right? People are turning towards painkillers mm -hmm. as a solution and they are a solution because these are people that are suffering from emotional pain that is not being treated in any other way. Right. So if we take the drugs away, they're still going to have that emotional pain and it is going to come out in other ways. So that really needs to be addressed. For me, okay, when you say heroin kept me from killing myself, mm -hmm. for me right there, that's everything. Like, that's, mm -hmm. that's the whole thing. Drinking kept me alive, even if it nearly killed me a few times. Right. And it kept me from, like, spontaneously combusting from PTSD. Mm -hmm. um, so after this last relapse, I added a therapist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I have two therapists reading voraciously about mental health and mm -hmm. addiction, um, building a community, all these things. But I'm like terrified to um, get into a, an intimate relationship again. So this kind of goes like mm -hmm. with the, atta the attachment stuff I was talking about earlier. Like at some point you realized, you know, like every, once I get emotionally intimate, I shut down. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the same for me. Like I've literally mapped out, the last 10 years and there's a very clear pattern like get in a relationship about three months goes by gets a little too intimate drink break up every mm -hmm. single time so it's like uh that part freaks me out well i think that part of it is you know and it's hard because i, I know that i wasn't always good at it part of it is like not getting into a relationship until you've worked on that stuff but yeah. how do you how do you work on it outside of relationship i mean i've been working on the attachment stuff for 10 years now and with my therapist mm -hmm. so what do you how do you know when you're ready i don't know if you do and yeah. maybe, that may be that you know i certainly i think if i look at like sort of my relationships i think that like i progressively especially once you know drugs were out of the picture i i became healthier <laughs> but mm -hmm. like even with 
my relationship now with my husband in the beginning, I was still sort of participating in some of that sabotaging behavior. And because he was in a much healthier place than I was, he was able to say like, hey, I see what you're doing and it's not working and you're going to eventually kill this relationship. So either I want you to be willing to go get some help to deal with it or it's not going to work. Right. And because I had been working on myself for, you know, X amount of years already at that point, I wanted to go further with it. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's when I went back to therapy and I went back on a mood stabilizer and that made a huge difference for me. Mm. And I think it's, you know, again, it's going to be different for everyone. I think that for some people, maybe they need some EMDR. Some people are going to need just cognitive behavioral therapy. Some people are going to need medication. Some people are going to need a combination. And unfortunately, it's it's difficult to ascertain sort of what you need. And that's where, you know, the issue of privilege, which I address in the book repeatedly comes in. You know, I had access to all these things and it was still really difficult. You know, you take those privileges away and it's no wonder that the rate of relapse is so high mm-hmm. because how can we expect people, you can't just snap your fingers and, you know, be like, all right, I'm fine now. Let me snap out of it. It doesn't work like that. No. You know, and certainly not with trauma, which in my experience, most people struggling with substance use disorders have had some significant trauma in their past. Mm -hmm. Not all, but most. Right. Let's talk about family. Sure. I think I heard in another of your interviews, you said that you do not blame your parents for any part of your addiction or behavior, even as a kid. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. For me, I mean, the trauma that I endured through childhood, it explains mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of my response. Uh, I guess I'm kind of still in a place where I do. Well, I mean, I think, you know, first let me say, like, my neither of my parents were, like, outwardly abusive to me. Right. You know, neither one of them. Certainly, I didn't have good models for boundaries. And mm-hmm. I had, I was really enmeshed with my mom. And she had her own stuff that she was still sorting out. And our relationship certainly, like, as she started going to therapy when I was a teenager, you know, a lot of sort of the the damage was already done. So I wasn't really receptive to things, but she certainly has sat with me in therapy and, you know, let me yell all of my anger at her and didn't get defensive and validated what I was feeling and told me she was sorry. And even, you know, things that happened like later on, we've had a lot of time and space to process it all. And at the end of the day, neither of my parents ever turned their backs on me, mm-hmm. even though maybe they weren't there for me in the way that I needed when I was younger. Mm-hmm. When I asked for help, they were there. And I think once I became a parent and I made a lot of mistakes, you know, certainly with my older son, because I was fresh off of drugs and just trying to figure out how to function as an adult, I certainly made mistakes, you know, said things in front of him I shouldn't have said, you know had breakdowns in front of him. And I know that that's going to affect him, you know, and, you know, I've been sort of proactive to try and get him therapy and, (laughs) and, you know, so he can process that stuff. You know, he's never known me on drugs, but he certainly hasn't known me always as an emotionally healthy person. Right. I have a lot lot more empathy for my parents than I did before I had a child. I realize like you don't, you become a parent and you still have all of your crap yeah Yeah. but you know that said you know I understand like that that doesn't mean that that's the same for every situation and I don't I think that both of my parents have said to me that you know 
that they have regret about a lot of things, you know, especially my mom feels Mm -hmm. they've both read the book. It's really, really hard for my mom to read. You know what? They've read it and like are so supportive and like, that's a huge gift. Yeah. A completely different place in our relationship now than we were, you know, and what, you know, what the whole narrative arc is in the book. Right. Were you worried about them reading it? Of course. I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't going to be anything. I mean, certainly there were things that I hadn't told them, but you know, they knew the broad strokes, mm-hmm. but they didn't know the detail. And God, I was worried because, you know, there's, there's sex in the book. There's assault in the book. There's a lot of drugs in the book. And, yeah. and like I said, it's not that they didn't know these things in sort of like broad strokes. Right. To, to read that would I can imagine would be really hard. Mm-hmm. I didn't think that they were going to disown me or anything. And I think that I, I did my best to portray everyone in the book without any sort of, with as much self-awareness on my part and things as possible. Right. You know, I didn't want to throw anyone under the bus. I didn't want to tell anyone else's story. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that I was true to what I experienced. And then you know, as I brought today's voice into the chapters, I wanted to acknowledge things that I see now that I didn't see then. Yeah. How, so in the process of writing, because I'm writing a memoir as well. First of all, how many years in the making was the book? There's the book. So in 2010, I started, I kind of was back into writing. I went back to school to finished my degree that I had never finished. And in a personal essay class, a professor had said to me, I think you have a memoir in you. And that was sort of like where the seed was planted. And then over the next, you know, several years, as I was writing more and more, I kind of started to really believe that I had a memoir in me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, so I guess you could say the seed was planted 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. But um, the actual writing of it, I had written you know, bits and pieces, like I had written certain chapters, um, had had parts of it and was working on a proposal when my agents contacted me, they had read something I had written. Mm -hmm. And at that point, when I signed with them, then I worked with them on the proposal, which was a real map to the book, right? The book itself, the actual like nuts and bolts writing Mm -hmm. the book, I wrote in like three and a half months. (laughs) Oh my God. I know. (laughs) That's like me reading it in one day. But, (laughs) but you have to understand too, like I did have some chapters, even though I completely rewrote everything. I had some chapters there and Uh I had the whole narrative arc there. I had the narrative arc within each chapter there. So it wasn't as hard as it sounds. And I'm a fast writer. And I was thinking about this for so long. Right. A lot of my writing process is pre-writing is me, you know, understanding what I'm going to do before I sit down to do it. So yeah, it didn't didn't take that long because I had everything so mapped out. Now, did you, when I read the book, it felt to me like you probably have a lot of journals. Yes. Okay. Because I was like, (laughs) I don't know, all the tiny details from so long ago, like the songs that were playing Mm -hmm. on the radio. How did you, you remember those? I have a very good memory. First Uh of all, I've always like joked about it. Like in school, I was like the person that like studied like an hour before school started and then got an A (laughs) on the test. I don't have like a photographic memory, but I had like near photographic. Like if I had something once, I would remember it. It's gotten worse over the years, (laughs) but I do, I do have a good memory. I kept journals 
from the age of seven. Like I have so many journals. Wow. And then I had years where I wrote letters back and forth to my best friend. I had tapes that the we tapes. sent. Yeah, we <laughs> sent tapes back and forth to each other, and we both kept everything. And uh, what's amazing in the journals and letters is that I have like dialogue in there, right? From conversations, <laughs> like what a gift is that? That is huge. And then because I'm still in contact with a lot of the people that appear in the book, I certainly talk to people about. Do you remember when this happened? Like, is this accurate? What I'm remembering? Yeah. Most of the time, it was. Sometimes they remember. They were like, yes, but remember, you know, X. And I was like, oh, yeah. So, you know, I did the best that I could with with the tools that I had. I'm sure that there are things that other people remember differently because we experience them differently. Um, And even with having journals, my recordings that, you know, as everything was happening in my journals was still through my lens. Right. Yeah. But they were very helpful. Very, very helpful. So incredible. I wish I had journals or something I so much of my life my memory is weird I mean with trauma mm-hmm. like you said in the book bits and pieces come back yeah. one at a time like a puzzle and it's hard um so you're lucky that's awesome yeah <laughs> the tapes that would be so cool to hear myself yes do you remember the show Felicity? Yes. <laughs> it was like that. So, yeah. And those are even better because you're just, bah, 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 bah. this happened and that happened. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Um, okay. Uh, back to your, your mother. So I think it was kind of your high school years, maybe. Um, chapter five, Dazzle, you wrote about the how your relationship with mom became very strained to the point where you threatened to hurt her, through a chair at her, all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, then we read the scene in the therapist's office where he asks you where you think your uh, anger is coming from, and you finally express it, and mom validates you. Yeah. Do you think it's possible to process anger without being validated? I think of myself, I think of, I'm a sixth-grade teacher, with a very highly impacted population, both by poverty and trauma. Mm -hmm. And they're very angry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, How do we, how do we do it? I think that it's possible. I think that it's important that, you know, had it not been my mom, you know, obviously she was like the most, that's like your first relationship, right? Yeah. Is with your mother. So, and for me, my relationship was always so much closer with my mom because my dad just wasn't physically there. I, it was so important to me that she validated it, even though we still had ups and downs. That was a big, I will never forget that. And I will forever be grateful for that. And it's something that I now as a parent remember, and I think was like the most important parenting lesson I ever got from her was the ability to say, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, it was huge. That's a really, there are, a lot of parents that can't do that. Right. I think that what we as adults can do, if especially for kids, if they are in that position where they have a lot of anger that hasn't been validated by their parents, I think validating it as an adult to that kid is important and can mm-hmm. help, you know, um, because I think that, you know, part of anger is frustration with not being seen. Right. That's so hard. I mean, with my sixth graders, I don't know that many of them could even name it. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have the language. I mean, many adults don't have the language. Yeah. I was going to say, I know adults who still 
kind of act out like that, you know, with their anger misplaced. And it's so interesting to me. It's anger is very powerful, it feels like. It seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that you kind of credit your ultimate sobriety or getting clean with the birth of your son, your first son, Atticus. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's true or would you have gotten clean if you hadn't had him? I don't, I don't think I would have. I mean, I, you know, who's to say, but I didn't have, you know, the, the, it's not so much that he's the person that he got me sober, but you know, the whole time during my pregnancy, I was still very disconnected and ambivalent and like, didn't think that I would be able to like get off the train I had been on. I was like, okay, I'm taking a break, but I didn't know that I'd be able to get off the train. And then, you know, the minute that I sort of looked at him, I just... (laughs) It was like that overwhelming feeling and it literally had this sort of like my own voice running in my head. Like, I love you more than I hate myself. Yeah. And that's huge because I hated myself a lot. Yeah. And I think that I know that people had loved me before then, but I don't really feel like until I had him, I was capable of receiving love. Yeah. While he's not what kept me clean, he's he was the the uh, motivation that I was like, I have to do whatever I can do because I didn't want, I didn't want, there was like this like new life in my hands and I didn't want to put all that trauma and self-loathing onto him. Yeah. So, and you know, I say this, that I feel like really lucky that that happened for me because it doesn't happen for everybody. And that doesn't mean that they don't love their children. And I really want to make that clear because I know, that there are a lot of people that like have children and they still like struggle. And that's not for whatever reason, it flipped a switch for me. And then, and then I had the ability to access care, right? mental health care. Right. Those, those were really the factors there. So yeah, I mean, my mom has always said like, he was your guardian angel because mm-hmm. I don't, I just don't, I can't imagine that I would have, that I'd be here now had I not had him. Um, You open the book with him asking you the question, mom, have you ever done drugs? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, shit. (laughs) 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 And then it doesn't, you don't come back to that question until the very end. And I just, I was so thankful that you decided to talk to him. Mm -hmm. That was such a tender, beautiful moment. How did you kind of think of him or did you think, is he one one day going to read this book? I mean, certainly, I thought that there's, you know, there's nothing stopping anyone from reading it. I know, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, he's now 16. He'll be 17 in August. And oh. so he's in a different place now, right? Yeah. Um, and I've told him, I mean, he's read, he read the first chapter of this book. And like, he was like, Mom! <laughs> <laughs> I think that you know, I told him, I said, you know, you know, I'm not going to stop you from reading the book, but you know, you might not want to, I don't know yeah. how it's going to make you feel to read it. But yeah. I certainly, you know, there's nothing in the book that I carry shame about anymore. So That's if he nice. had questions about it, I could certainly talk about it. That doesn't mean that there's things that I don't regret happening because of right. course there's things that like, when I think about like, God, like, I wish I could go back and change things that I did or said at certain times. But I can't. And I have now I kind of with all the work that I've done, I have a choice like I can hold on to that shame. I can just drop it because it's not serving me. And it's not going to like by me dropping the shame and being open to tell this story to people and to talk about it really openly helps other people drop shame. And like what a higher what's a higher purpose than that? 
I had um, another writer reach out to me who teaches a class um, to incarcerated folks. And Uh, they, I had written something for Salon last month about, um, you know, rethinking the tough love response to addiction. And she had assigned it as a, um, you know, for them to read and respond to and write about. And she wrote me this beautiful message telling me how much it meant to them and that they felt really seen mm. by things that I talked about in there. And that almost all of them had also struggled with heroin or other opioid addiction and had lost people to overdose. And it just, I mean, like I just started crying because yeah. like there's nobody more unseen than, than people that are in jail. That's where I feel like this is, there's no room anymore for shame for me. And that's like, that's such a freeing thing because I was somebody that had so much shame for so long. Yeah. You're such an honest narrator um like um i trusted you as a reader i trusted you right off the bat because you were so honest and you didn't like you said you wanted to portray everyone uh what's the word i don't know honestly without blame from your own perspective and your honesty about all the things that you've you've done and the shame was is giving me permission i feel like even just in this conversation i don't think i've told people that my concussion was from being drunk. You say you could just drop it. Is it that easy? Like how, what is the process? I mean, yes and yes and no, because I think that like, even after I first stopped using, you know, I, for, there was a few years, like I hadn't told everybody everything, you know, people didn't know that I was using when I was first pregnant, although people suspected, Yeah, you know, there were lots of things that I felt a lot of shame about still, Yeah, you know, and, but as I started opening up, and realizing like how much the shame sort of lifted when I did that, it became easier and easier. And I think I say this in the book as well, that, you know, I look at it like I had spent all these years in this room on fire and I just didn't know how to get out of the room. And the flames just got closer and closer and closer. And then finally I just opened the door and walked out. And had I known (laughs) that it was that easy, (laughs) I would have done it a long time ago. I think a lot of times the anticipation of doing something is so much scarier than when you actually do it. Yes, I would agree with that. Um, well, it go, because it goes back to this sort of primal fear we all have, right? If you knew X about me, you wouldn't love me. That's our, you know, and we all, whether we want to admit it or not, we want to be lovable. We want to be loved. And we keep things from people because we think if they knew them, they wouldn't love us. Right. How does that, I mean, yeah, that's the, that's the story of my life. How... Would you say like the? I mean, I know you're saying um, treatment for addiction needs to be multifaceted, and, mm-hmm. but if you could boil it down to like one thing that that is the antidote or whatever, would you say it's like love and connection? Yeah, I mean, I think you know Johan Hari has that famous TED talk. Everything we know about addiction is wrong. Totally agree with what he says. Yeah, it is about because when you're in the throes of addiction, you're disconnected, mm-hmm. right? So when you, when you're able to connect again, that's where, that's like the biggest antidote to addiction. Okay. So something you struggled with and I think portrayed really well in your book was kind of the privilege aspect of your addiction mm-hmm. and recovery. And our friend Kelly was kind of texting with me last night about this. She's like, ask her if, <laughs> um, <laughs> 
Do you think because you had the resources that you did, it might have actually enabled you to keep relapsing because you could always just detox again? <laughs> sure, for sure. I mean, and also because it kept, well, you know, for the first 10 years, I part of the reason that I didn't get caught or arrested was privilege, right? Right. Oh, yeah. There was, you know, white privilege. Because I got pulled over a lot of times, nobody ever searched my car. Right. You know, there was financial privilege that I was able to kind of like not have to resort to stealing to, you know, right away towards the end, (laughs) you know, things got worse and worse. But I, you know, I was able to kind of stay afloat for so long because of financial privilege. So yes, in a lot of ways, those privileges, you know, it was a double edged sword. Right. They helped me when I went when I needed to get help. I had access to help because of those privileges. But they also enabled me to stay hidden in that addiction for a long time. Right. Talk a little bit about all of these relationships. (laughs) (laughs) Could kind of relate. How do I want to say this? (laughs) What do you? I mean, what do you? What do you see as the connection between kind of all the relationships and love and sex and your addiction? Is there a connection? I mean, I think that yeah. I think that like I definitely had this forward motion of like, I wanted to keep moving. And that included keep moving through relationships. I really wanted to be loved. I Mm. wanted to be loved. I wanted to give love. But then the second that I had anything resembling love in front of me, I was so suffocated and wanted to destroy it. I mean, it was the same kind of way, similar to the relationship I had with money where like, I had all this shame around money too. So I would just want to like get rid of it as fast as possible, mm. which just led me to be very irresponsible, both with money and with people's emotions. Right. You know? And I think that I was so determined not to let anyone hurt me that I, I cheated in almost every relationship I ever had because it was like, oh, well, if they hurt me, I have this. Like, I know I already did this to them, you know, mm. not consciously, but like right. that I, I needed a secret. I needed something to separate me from them, whether it was drugs or, you know, cheating or whatever it was. I needed that secrecy there. I couldn't allow myself to be so close. And that was like the crux of it was the fear of being hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Because here's the thing is that if I sabotage every relationship, I have control. Right. Right. It's all control. Right. If I sabotage every relationship, I'm never really hurt because it's my fault. So if I really put myself out there and then get hurt, that's a lot more painful. (laughs) And it's not that I didn't get hurt along the way. I certainly did. But I think that, you know, that I had this illusion of control, that I was controlling the narrative somehow because I was sabotaging things. Yeah, this is exciting for me because (laughs) talking to you is like talking to every one of my exes because (laughs) so I have a history of of getting with people who kind of have the same core fear and Mm -hmm. we would say that their their attachment style is avoidant. So. I've come to my therapist so many times in the moment of being of them having disconnected or backed off or whatever and being like, why, why? Like, I don't understand it. Doesn't, it's so sad to me. Like trying to figure that out and reading your book early on, I was like, man, I was getting like resentful almost, but but not really. It gave me a deeper understanding. Mm -hmm. The book attached that we briefly spoke about earlier um, I definitely fall more on the anxious attachment side, mm-hmm. although based on my pattern of like getting in a relationship, getting too intimate and then drinking, I'm thinking the anxious avoided thing. Yeah. 
my therapist, bless his heart, he says, like, both anxiously attached and avoidantly attached. They both want to be loved. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the core wound or the core fear for an avoidant is being hurt, like you said, and the core fear for an anxious is being abandoned. Mm-hmm. And that dynamic has been, like, the biggest marker of my life for the last 10 years. Do you think that you connected with anxious partners or avoidant partners, or was there a pattern? I don't know that there was a pattern. I definitely met a lot of partners who wanted to save me, <laughs> yeah, you know, on some level, or fix me. Uh, yeah, I mean, I certainly, I definitely, I mean, look, a lot of, <laughs> I mean, I think that, like, even subconsciously, like, a healthy person wouldn't want to get in a relationship with me then, the me then, you know, um, I wasn't healthy. Right. Uh, I wasn't a healthy choice. So I think, but I don't know if that, you know, they were all different, different ways because I, I certainly dated some people that were similar to me. I dated some people that were different. I didn't tend to get, to get with people that were just anxious because mm. that would immediately feel overwhelming to me. Right. That's, that's happened to me too. Yeah. We were having a discussion on Facebook about our favorite men <laughs> last night from your book. Um, ah. <laughs> <laughs> the father of, your first child and we say as much or as little as you want, but he seemed like a real piece of work. I don't know. Um, you know, he's somebody that is a product of his own issues and, you know, um, he has since done a lot of work on himself. I don't think that he would necessarily make a lot of the same decisions that he did then now. And, you know, we were both super unhealthy super unhealthy in different ways. And we were both very deceitful with each other about different things for him with me. It was about other women. And for me with him, it was about drugs. Yeah. And, you know, I really feel like we were just meant to be together to have Atticus. I don't think that like, I think about it now and like, there's nothing about that relationship where I'm like, yeah, I remember like what I loved there, <laughs> that awful. but I really think we were just for whatever reason, supposed to have Atticus. And right. so I will always be grateful to him for that. And right. I'm grateful that he was not also an addict, you know, because that would have been really challenging and to, for both of Atticus's parents to be struggling with that. Yeah. Super challenging. So I'm grateful for that. And I learned a lot in that relationship. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, did you, as a as a memoirist, I've talked with others about getting friends or family members' eyes on the work and their or their permission to write about them. Did you talk to him before? He knew I was writing it, and I he hasn't read it, but he knows he knows what's in, I've told him, I'm like, these are the things that are going to be the most upsetting for you to read. <laughs> right. But they were things that happened. And I didn't, right. you know, there was a lot of, there's certainly a lot of things that I left out. And I think that, you know, there's nothing that I put in there that, that wasn't true. There's nothing that I put in there that really like endangers him in any way. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I, I feel like I showed him in a fair light and what my experience was then. Right. Did anybody get upset with you? I mean, there's About so many. Writing it? Uh, no. Yeah. 
No. I mean, there were other like ex-boyfriends that I contacted just to let them know and ask them if they wanted to read it first. Uh-huh. And they said no, that they trusted me. And, you know, I've changed every name except for my husband and my my kids. So right. every other name in the book has changed, including like family members. So I don't feel like I, I'm not I'm not worried about that part of it at this point. I mean, like, yes, there may be. Sure, there might be somebody that reads something where they get upset, but I don't know. Right. I think that somebody told me that people are more upset when they don't make it into the book. <laughs> I've heard that too. Because there's certainly, you know, like, I mean, believe it or not, there, there are like brief relationships that I left out of the book. <laughs> Wowzers. Do you ever want to use again? I haven't in a really long time. I mean, it's been 17 years and I get asked this a lot. Like, do I ever worry about relapsing again? And I know like from a 12 step model, I'm supposed to have this stance. Like it could happen at any moment, no matter how long I've, been clean, but I really don't have, I've had painkillers after surgery in the last 17 years. And, you know, what I found is that they don't really relieve the pain that well, and they just made me feel a little anxious. So Mm -hmm. I didn't even end up taking the prescriptions I had. Yeah. Uh, You know, certainly like I had to, like, you know, I had tumor removed and I was, they put, they had me on morphine in the hospital was not like, I don't, it didn't give me like the same relief or high or anything that it did before. Like it just doesn't freaking work anymore. And I really know that my desire to never go through withdrawal again is far bigger than any craving I've ever had. (laughs) I really don't ever want to go through that hell again. So, I mean, this might sound dark or dramatic, but I would rather be hand if somebody like was like you either kill yourself or you get strung out again, I would take the first option. And I know that's really dark, but I just wouldn't, I have, like, when I think about that hell of the same, like, you're living the same horrible day over and over and over and over again, I have mm. no desire to go back there at all. I've never done drugs. Thankfully, they scare me. <laughs> um, but you really paint the detox process and the craving process and just the whole thing so well that I, I could feel it almost. Right. And I mean, I've, you know, my drug of choice is alcohol. You're lucky. You're like, the alcohol didn't do it for me. Like, not oh, that you're lucky. I, <laughs> I mean... Um, no, but I, but no, it's, it's hard because alcohol is so socially acceptable and right. kind of pushed on us everywhere. So I can imagine like it's a whole different dynamic. Yeah. I recently watched a film. I can, I'm trying to look up the name of it about heroin addict mm-hmm. and, and his sister, I think that kept trying to help him. Mm-hmm. And it was similar to your book in that it kept painting that cycle. I think it helps destigmatize addiction because even for me, it took some of my shame away. It's like relapse. You know, relapse. I've been so black and white about relapse before. Like, I ruined everything. Or, right. Oh, I, I know was, that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. But now I just am finding it easier to just accept myself mm-hmm. and my relapses. Um so thank that, you for that. That relapse doesn't erase the work you put in when you were sober, right? Right. You don't pick up where you left off necessarily, but you're not going back to never having any experience with sobriety either. Right. And I think that that's important. That's an important distinction. And I think that's something that I had a, I really struggled with in 12-step programs. And I'm not saying that they're all like that or that that's still true today. Part of it comes from like other people, they like, it feels threatening to their own sobriety, right? When somebody relapses. So they really want to distance themselves from yeah. it. But 
I just think that like, no, like you certainly don't have to relapse. That doesn't have to be a part of your story. But I think that like, if it is like, it doesn't have to be such a big deal. And I know that that's really scary when we're talking about drugs that you can overdose from. I get that, you know, this is why I'm a huge fan of harm reduction services. Yeah, I feel like everyone that's written a memoir about drug abuse or alcohol abuse, after it's out, they never they never relapse like you don't do you think it's a good idea to wait a certain amount of time before you put like a recovery story out I couldn't have written this book or the same book even 10 years ago right I think that something that really benefited me was the distance that I had yeah certainly like that doesn't mean that somebody can't write a book with like far less sobriety but right. I think that the distance added perspective that I wouldn't have had earlier on because I've had the time and space to process things and because my life is so different now. Well, what's next for you? I mean, I know this is <laughs> this book's not even out yet, but <laughs> are you doing a book tour or anything like that? I am doing a book tour. So my launch is this Tuesday. I don't know when this podcast is going to air, but this Tuesday. So this right. Tuesday <laughs> in New York at Books for Magic is my book launch. And then... I um, go on the road next Saturday. I leave for San Francisco. So I'm going to San Francisco on the 1st of March. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll be in Portland at Powell's Books on the 2nd. San Francisco is at the Book Passage, the Corte Madera store. And then on the 3rd, I'll be at Skylight Books in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And then I head to San Antonio for the WP conference. And I'll be doing three events there, Voices of Addiction, uh, event at um, Our Lady of the Lake University, sponsored mm-hmm. by the Rumpus. Yes. Then the Memoir Monday is on Memoir Monday is on Friday at <laughs> at five p.m. And then that Saturday, I'll be on the main stage in the book fair at AWP for a debut authors like group reading at noon. Nice. Well, I will yeah. be there. I hopefully we run into each other. Yes. I think I put the a couple. I at least put the voices of addiction. That's off site, right? Yeah. That's yeah. On Thursday at seven o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. I think that. And then I come on. back and I go to. I do some more things. <laughs> I go to Miami <laughs> and then Hudson and then so, on my on my website I have like all the updated. Um, tour stuff. <laughs> Are you coming to Denver at all? No, I don't have plans to right now, but um, maybe for, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, it's going to be a crazy couple months for you. It I'm is. Sure. <laughs> Um, hopefully I get to see you at AWP. Yeah. And thank you so much again for sitting down with me. You're so welcome. This was really fun. Thanks again for listening. Aaron Carr's debut memoir, Strung Out, is out Tuesday, February 25th, and can be purchased from Apple Books, IndieBound, Amazon, Target, and Barnes & Noble, among others. Until next time.